There was a book written several years ago um, entitled The Insanity of God. Anybody read the book? I think the, st yeah, the staff, yeah. Uh, it was a man that um, went around the world to talk to persecuted Christians. I don't know if you know this, but and maybe it's because the world population is so much greater today than it's been. There is more persecution of Christians in our world than any other time in history. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Uh, I am told that there are there have been as many martyrs for the faith in the people that gave their life in the last hundred years than there were in the 1900 years before that of Christian history. Um, the author of the book Insanity of God interviewed the persecuted church and Christians and those that give their lives. I, I don't know, we could start naming countries where people are persecuted for their faith, but there's numerous ones in the day in which we live. Um, and I, I, I was listening to that song, and I thought, it had a phrase in it, and it was, it was their answer to his, his question, why? I was looking for you. What, are you okay? Okay. Uh, I, I really like y'all sitting in your regular seats because I know where to look for you when I'm making a point that applies to you. Like Hal Jackson, it's like, I just need, I need you right there because when I get to that point that Marcel told me to bring up, I need to know where to find you. I don't make me look for you. Um, but seriously, the author would ask the question, Why? And at least one person, if not a number of them across the world, said, and it kind of comes from this song, Jesus is worth it. And I, y'all, I, I, and there was a documentary made. We, we watched it, some of us. The Insanity of God. And, uh, man, it just, it crushes me. And my little immature faith that can't stand up with what I might perceive of as pressure or stress or I would never say rises to the level of persecution in my life. These people who worship God at the risk of their lives and their family members and the people they worship with, some of them have died and uh, would be willing to take their stand and stay true to Christ and the response is to the question, why? Jesus is worth it. And so we, I don't know, I guess to maybe help you and me put our lives in perspective of whatever we are asked as the followers of Christ, wherever he leads us in the circumstances in which we find ourselves, which many times we look at and we think, why? Why? 
would God allow this? Why would God put me through this? Why would I have to walk this road? When we ask the question of why of God, then I think we have to ask the question of why from the insanity of God. And the answer has to be, why would I walk that road? Because Jesus is worth it. Um, and we come to a section of scripture today that was written by a man uh, that was in those kind of circumstances. Um, and it's the Apostle John. And he's on the island of Patmos. Tommy Jan, have you been to Patmos? Of course, of course, Tommy Jan. So we'll all go to her house this afternoon and look at her pictures of Patmos. I want to go there. And I know, I know you've been to Ephesus too. I remember having that conversation with you. I didn't remember Patmos. Uh, the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. And so kind of the way I framed last week and I started it is, you know, we, we've come to the final character in God's one big story. All these events, all these characters and major individuals, and finally we come down to the very end of the story. And you know, any great story is going to have a great climax. And the last three sermons of this series are the climax to the story, and now we get to the final book, the book of Revelation. And it gives us the answer to the question, so how does it all turn out? If, if God's 66 books uh, tells us the story of God's redemption, then, then how does it all play out? What is, what is the final statement? And kind of the interesting thing, and I'm going to need you this morning to take your sheet. Ooh, we've got a lot we've got to talk about. But just to help you put the book of Revelation, the last book, into the context, in the New Testament there are books of history, uh, first section, uh, Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the history of the early church, Acts. And then you have the writings. And this, this, these three points are the same as the Old Testament. Obviously, they're different books and different number. And you have all the letters of Paul. And then you have the general letters that we've kind of walked our way through. Ah, not really. We just kind of threw out one sermon, as I remember. Maybe two sermons. And then finally, we come to the one book of prophecy in the, Old in the New Testament, and that is the book of Revelation. It's the last book. And rightfully so, because it tells us about the future. How does it all turn out? What does it look like? What is, what's going to happen? How does the story end? Uh, this is the way. It, not, you're going to need to just hang on to that because we're going to come back to that here in just a second. Um, but this is the way that last book starts. The first nine verses. In Revelation 1, verse 1, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, Jesus, to show his servants, things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God, and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy 
and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. And then the kind of the introductory greeting. It says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. We'll talk about those in just a minute, just briefly. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And then this statement in verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And then the books kind of, then the action starts. That's kind of the introduction. There are really two dynamics that I need to deal with before we look at this just briefly this morning. And the first is this statement that we are confronted with today that there, throughout the story of God's one big story, there has been a conflict between good and evil. And we haven't really talked about it. We've kind of talked about the drama between God and mankind and what God's wanting to do in redeeming them. But there's another uh, evil spiritual dynamic that is going on in the midst of the story. And kind of we've just, maybe it's come up occasionally, but not really. We haven't talked about it. And we, what we have to acknowledge today is this dynamic that there is, a, there is a conflict between good and evil in the midst of the story, and it is coming to a head and a climax in the book of Revelation. The other thing is we have to understand the context of this historically, and that's where I need you to look at your sheet. Uh, you can only understand the book of Revelation and what God is teaching us about the future and the end when you understand the day in which John lived and what was happening. I know I haven't, we haven't looked at the timeline recently. I know many of you have been studying those timelines each week for the final exam. I know you have. Uh, maybe not. Um, The early church starts, I think our date was 30 A.D. The gospel goes out and begins to spread. and There's localized persecution, but there's not 
empire-wide, Roman empire-wide persecution until the time of Nero, who comes to be Caesar over the Roman Empire, which is ruling over the region that the gospel has gone to, until 54. Um, but there's something quite uh, pivotal that happens in 64, and there's a great fire in Rome. Many people would believe that Nero himself, who was psychotic, cruel, inhumane, so many other things, he set the fire. But here's what happened. <clears throat> there had been localized persecution until the great fire, and Nero announces it was the Christians who set it. And kind of, there's a distinction made at this point in Christian history that uh, the Christians were perceived as a group of the, of, of the Jews. They were just a sect of the Jews. Um, but all of a sudden, no, they see that Christianity and Judaism are separate religions and all this even though the Jews in some respects get a, a pass as a legal religion within the Roman Empire for the first time the Christians do not and the wrath of the Roman Empire is unleashed on Christianity and it becomes an illegal religion empire wide now there's something else that happens that is not necessarily pertinent to our story but I want you to understand that the Jews rebel against Rome in about 66, and the Romans come, and in 70 AD, they, they sack and destroy Jerusalem, and the temple is destroyed, and it's never rebuilt all, all these years. There, there's, there's not a temple there. There's a spot where the temple was. There is the western wall <laughs> that's left, but the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem. And the Jews, I think a million of them were killed. And they are scattered. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it, was, it was a historic event. Um, but it's during this time that John goes to Ephesus. And John is an old man in his 80s, maybe even his 90s, becomes the last of the um, <clears throat> apostles to be alive. All the others have been martyred, killed, or died. Um, the Roman Empire during Nero's time and then later in Emperor Domitian's time have uh, what were called games. Uh, this is, <laughs> to put it in context today, this is like hunger games. Christians were killed for entertainment. Uh, oh my. They were, they were tied to bulls and their bodies were severed as the bulls split them. <clears throat> There were dogs. They were put in arenas where dogs or lions would maul them and kill them. Uh, I didn't mention this. It's on your timesheet, but it was during Nero's time that Peter and Paul are executed. Paul is beheaded. Peter is crucified by his own request upside down. <clears throat> Some of them were crucified. Uh, Some of them were set on fire. Burned. 
But in the story of the first century, John goes to Ephesus, Emperor Domitian becomes the Caesar, and Domitian wants to be considered, as previous Caesars had, he wanted to be considered God. He elevates himself to God's status, and so there is a phrase that people were called upon uh, in courtrooms to profess their allegiance to Caesar, they would say, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. And the Christians were brought before the, the authorities, and they were convicted of being a part of an illegal religion, and they were told to recant, and what they had to say was, Caesar is Lord. It meant that Nero or Domitian and the stories I know that survive are the stories of the Christians that refused and lost their lives. They would not say, Caesar is Lord, because the earliest church confession, you know, it's the same phrase. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He is God. I, I will not profess allegiance to anyone else because Jesus is Lord. And many of them gave their lives... Um, and here's what happens, is Domitian uh, wants to enforce emperor worship in Asia Minor, and Ephesus is the leading city, and he builds a temple to himself as God, and he erects a statue of himself that is to be worshipped. And all of a sudden, this is where John is, the heat is raised among the Christians. And the authorities are saying, you must profess with your mouth that Caesar is Lord, and they would not. But as a statement, uh, the authorities arrest John, who is the last of the followers of Jesus. Old man in his probably mid to late 80s at this point, maybe dies in his early 90s, uh, and they, they banish him, they exile him to an island, I think it's about 20 miles off the coast from Ephesus of modern-day Turkey, Patmos, this little island. And the old man is there, kept. And that is the context in the midst of that in which God sends word about the future, the end. I want you to understand, John was not writing some theological little book that helped us understand about end times and the persecution that's coming. No, he was in it. He was in the fire. And his people that he was pastor over and in his region and those seven churches, they were in the fire and the pressure was on. Will you profess that Caesar is Lord, or will you, to your death, profess that Jesus is Lord? Um, when we come to the first verse, uh, let, let me say this before I move on. I, I put down some key words on your sheet, and one of those words is the word witness. Uh, the Greek word for witness is the word that we transliterate 
martyr from. And so witness initially was one who gives testimony. And so anytime we read in this section of scripture and it says witness or testimony, it is this word that becomes martyr. Originally, it's simply one who is a one who gives testimony, one who is a witness, but it became to be the word that was used for one who gave their witness even to their own death. What was their witness? That Jesus is Lord. When they were asked to profess with their mouth that Caesar is Lord, they would say Jesus is Lord. They would give witness, testimony. And it's, it's, it's in this, these verses. They talk about John who gave his, the word of his testimony. My testimony is that Jesus is Lord. You do with me whatever you want. But I will not say Caesar is Lord. Um, and so it's a significant word in there. And so when you hear witness or testimony, you think of the word martyr. In verse 1, when he says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. The word revelation, you can see it on the sheet, is a word we get, actually we get our word apocalypse from, that does not necessarily tell you what it means. Uh, it is a word that means an unveiling. And this is what I want you to get. The opening statement, the title of the book is Revelation. This is John, when he writes this, he says this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It is an unveiling. And there's a couple senses that I want you to get here to understand that. Yes, it, the sense is the curtains are pulled back. There is something, there is a drama, there is something, there is significance, there is something that is hidden, that is a mystery, and all of a sudden, the book of Revelation says we're going to pull back the curtains so that you can see. And there is a sense that, yes, we are pulling back the curtains to the future so that we know from the book of Revelation, how does the story end? It is true that part of the Revelation is about the future and how the story all plays out. And in fact, if you look on your sheet, the outline of Re Revelation, most of Revelation is about the last days. It's about the Great Tribulation. Um, the statement of reality in the book of Revelation, if I'm just generalizing this. So I'm going to tell you that next Sunday I'm going to preach on from Revelation 20. We just skip from 1 to 20, all right? On the defeat of Satan. Brother Cody is preaching the Sunday before Christmas, and then the Sunday after Christmas, we're going to get to heaven finally. I wanted to save that for the last Sunday, all right? We're going to get there. Just hang with me. If you've been with me, all 50 ser 52 sermons, yes, we're going to get there. We're going to get you to heaven. Um, but notice the outline of Revelation, that the chapter 1 is a vision of Jesus by John, 2 and 3 is about the messages to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Chapter 4 is the vision of the heavenly throne. So the, the curtain is pulled back and John sees heaven. And he sees the vision of the sealed scroll in 5. And then 6 through 18 is those seals being unsealed. And it is a vision uh, about 
the last days, the seven years of the great tribulation at the very end. And then in 19, we're going to have the second coming of Jesus. Chapter 20, the defeat of Satan. And then finally, the last two chapters, the vision of heaven. So it is true that Revelation is, is an unveiling of the future. And it is a book of prophecy. Uh, and one of the things I want you to see and understand about the book of Revelation is that the present circumstances in which they found themselves are projected into the future. They are in the midst of tribulation, and the message of the book of tribulation is how is it going to end? You need to understand it's going to get bad. There will be an intensification. The conflicts between good and evil will intensify to a fevered pitch at the very end. Understand, the Bible does not teach as we pro proclaim the gospel around the world, it's going to get better and better and better and someday we're just going to step into eternity. <gasps> Glory, hallelujah, praise God. No, that's not what it teaches. Just in big picture, how is it going to end? At this point, what I'm telling you is the message of the mass of Revelation is there is going to be an incredible time of pressure and stress and persecution at the very end. It will be a, it will be a fevered pitch, an incredible time. That's why they call it not just tribulation, but the great tribulation. So it is true that when he says the revelation of Jesus Christ, he's saying, yes, we're going to pull back the curtain and we're going to see into the future and you want to know that your present circumstances are going to be projected into the future and it's going to be a time of great persecution. But that's not the point. When he says a revelation of Jesus Christ, he is not saying primarily it is a revelation from Jesus Christ. He is saying the revelation is Jesus Christ. You got to get this. When you pull back the curtains, the most important thing that you see and you know is that Jesus sits on the throne and he will end the story of redemption the way he chooses to. And that is a huge statement to people in the midst of persecution to say, am I going to stay true? Am I going to remain steadfast in the midst of this? The revelation is of a person, Jesus Christ. And he says, uh, he talks about John in verse 2, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. And then in verse 4, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia which were the churches around Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. Grace to you and peace from, there's three people, the, the Trinity is expressed here, from the Father, God, who is and was and is to come. Secondly, from the seven spirits, or the Holy Spirit in His fullness, who are before His throne. And thirdly, from the Son, Jesus Christ. Notice how the Son is described 
in verse 5. The faithful witness. What is that word there? Martyr. The one who gave his life. Why is that important? Because they are facing their own deaths. This is a revelation of a person who has walked that path before you. He is the faithful witness. He is the firstborn from the dead. Why is that significant? Because when you cross from this life into the next, if you have confessed Christ, then he defeats death. Christ not only sits on the throne, he is victorious over death and the powers of evil that they looked at and they saw and they said, it it appears that evil is winning. No, pull back the curtains and Jesus is on the throne and he will be victorious. He is the faithful witness. He is the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth. It appears that Caesar has the upper hand. No, just pull back the curtain. Jesus is Lord and he sits on the throne. He has not lost control. He will get you home. He will be faithful to you. The question is, will you be steadfast and faithful in the midst of the worst of circumstances? He describes him in verse 5, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and then has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then in verse 7, what is it that's going to happen? No, he's coming. It says in verse 7, behold, he is coming. In the midst of your tribulation, when it appears that God is not there, no, if you, if you just peek through the curtains, not only is Jesus on his throne, he is coming someday to set all things right. And good and righteousness will win out. You can believe it. And all through the book, behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. And then this statement, he makes it again later, but he says, he says, I am, it's in red in my Bible, he said it. I am Alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and the Omega, the last letter of the Greek alphabet, the beginning and the end. Now, do you know what Jesus is saying? He is saying, I started this thing. I'm going to end this thing. I'm from A to Z. Don't think that I ever lost control. I'm the one who started it. I will be the one who finishes it. I am Alpha Omega. I am the beginning and the end. Who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I am everlasting I am all-powerful. When John writes in verse 9, he says, I, John, both your brother and companion, in tribulation, that word tribulation, I have it on your sheet as one of the key words here, is, is a word in the Greek that means affliction, distress, but it comes from the word, what I think of, is to be pressed, to be crushed. Uh, tribulation is persecution that creates incredible stress and pressure. But John says, I am your brother and companion. I am there with you in the midst of the tribulation, the kingdom, and patience. And that word patience is the other, uh, one of the other significant words. Actually, it's a word that we get persevere from. But uh, 
the Greek word means to remain under, to be steadfast, and it's translated uh, persevere, uh, patience. And there's another one, uh, steadfast, that's endure, endurance. Endurance, so this word, hupomono, means to remain under, but it's translated either endure, persevere, or to be patient. In, in fact, if we just stop right there, that is, that is the challenge. That is the question. That is the admonition. That is the reason that the book of Revelation is written. In the midst of the pressure, as a follower of Jesus, regardless of what you go through, even if you faced death itself, would you remain steadfast? Would you stay true with the testimony of your life that Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord? That was the question that they faced. They understood that, and it was because of that that John is exiled to the island of Patmos. It says that he was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony uh, of Jesus Christ. In verse 10, he said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, here it is again, I am Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see Write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. Uh, John receives a vision. The book of Revelation is highly symbolic. It is a vision. Now, at this point, he says, I heard, I heard a voice. But notice in verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw. And really the rest of the book is a vision. Uh, let, me, let me get you in on a little bit of secret. Uh, not, it's not a secret, but something that helps us understand. The events that are described are going to be described in symbolic terms partly because they are beyond what you could relate um, in John's mind. There is another significance that's that more intriguing to me. The reason it is a vision in symbolic terms is so that the Christians would understand what it meant, but the Roman authorities would not. For those who have ears to hear, eyes to see. No, you, they would understand what the symbols mean. But if the Roman authorities got their hands on the scroll of the book, if John walked out of the prison on Patmos, which he did, with that scroll, and they read it, it's like, I, I don't know, the dude's, the dude's out of his mind. I don't, I don't even know what he's talking about. And so he sees... And he says, having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, which are the seven churches, one like the Son of Man. I I'm telling you, 
that the revelation is a revelation of a person. When the, when, the, when the curtains are parted and you look from your earthly perspective into eternity and what the reality is in the eternal world, what you see is a person. Revelation is the unveiling of a person that Jesus Christ is on the throne. He is in charge. He will end this thing. He is the sovereign one. And so John starts with this vision. I just want to read this and then make some closing comments. One like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine grass, brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his, his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things that will take place after this. John sees the glory of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, who is the one who sits on the throne and is sovereign and oversees our lives. And the message is simply this. In the midst of tribulation, know that Jesus still reigns. He is alive. He is present. He is the one that walks among the seven golden candlesticks. Secondly, in the midst of tribulation, know that Jesus will be victorious. Evil will not end. The devil will not get his way back. We're going we're gonna to take care of the devil next Sunday if you'll come back, all right? We're going to take care of him. The leader of the rebellion, from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20, he's had his time. It will be over. But John is communicating to the Christians of his day and the, every Christian that will live after that, and especially those who will live in the time of the Great Tribulation, that Jesus will be victorious. He overcame death, he will defeat evil, and he will be the one who will end human history. That truth and reality is still true today. Get this. This is what John saw. It was true in John's day. Well, let me let you in on a little something. It has not changed in 1900 years. Jesus is still on the throne. In fact, we're 1900 years closer to his coming again than John was. We a lot closer. And that was imminent to the early church. And it ought to be imminent to us. It is still true today. And the admonition of the scripture that was for them is also true for us. Whatever persecution we come, whatever stress we find in life, the question is, will you as a follower of Jesus Christ first remain steadfast? Will you remain true to your faith? We live in a time, I've told you this, that there are more persecuted Christians than at any time in human history. 
that ought to humble us in the midst of our comfortable little lives to think of those people around the world that worship today in secrecy and in fear of the authorities that will come and arrest them uh, because of their following Jesus Christ. We are to live steadfast. We are to remain steadfast. And secondly, we are to live in urgency. Jesus said that the gospel must go into all the world and then the end will come. And Jesus will end it the way he chooses to. And the scripture teaches us that we are to live in urgency. My fear is that as we do not experience the pressure of other people for our faith, that we become comfortable and we become soft and we rock along with our lives and we fail to see the urgency that we are closer now than ever to Jesus coming again and the end coming. And the call of the gospel is that we would take the gospel into all the world. Well, for us as a church, that starts in Huntington, Texas. And you will have opportunities as you leave this place this week to impact your world with the gospel. And, and don't think that, well, I've got tomorrow. You know, there, there's really no pressure here. No, there is a pressure. Because Jesus is going to end it when he chooses to. And you only have now, you only have today. And we are to live in gospel urgency. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? Uh, Father, today we uh, thank you that you're the God who holds tomorrow. And that Jesus, you are, you are Lord, you reign. And Father, we pray that we would be faithful and we would be true uh, to follow you today. Father, we pray for any who uh, need to make decisions today. First, for those who would need to trust Christ with their life because we know that eternity is closer now than ever. Father, today we pray that you would draw people to yourself to accept you as Savior and Lord. And uh, Father, we pray for us that have already made that decision that father we would make the decisions that you've called us to today to continue to follow you regardless of the pressure so father we give you this time and we pray it in jesus name Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe 
we live for you.